Welcome to episode 160 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is retired Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett. She took her 30 years of military experience and put them into her book, Rock the Boat. In her book, she talks about the lessons she has learned from her military career while also including real stories, or what she calls sea stories, from her time in the military. I really enjoyed getting a chance to have her as a guest on the podcast where we talked about her journey into the Navy, how she balanced her responsibilities in the military as both a mom and military officer, along with some of the highlights of her career, and of course, pieces of advice to help you in your career or decision to join the military. It's another great interview, so let's get started. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Women of the Military podcast would like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. Don't forget to head over to sabio.la today. Women of the Military podcast would also like to thank GruntStyle for sponsoring this week's episode. GruntStyle is an American veteran-owned and operated company that prides itself in patriotic spirit. GruntStyle makes high-quality clothing with patriotic themes that wave the American flag with pride. With more than 200 veterans on staff, GruntStyle has taken the American fighting spirit and instilled it in everything they do. GruntStyle had humble beginnings starting off as a t-shirt company out of the back of their founder's car. They have since grown to employing almost 400 Americans and producing apparel for working out, everyday wear, fishing, hunting, and more. Women of the Military podcast listeners can get an additional 10% off your first order by using my discount code HUFFMAN at checkout. So go to GruntStyle.com and use the discount code HUFFMAN, H-U-F-F-M-A-N, at checkout for an additional 10% off your first order on any items. That's GruntStyle.com and use the code HUFFMAN. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Danelle. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? 
Well, it's interesting. I grew up in Buffalo, which isn't like known to be a big military town. I mean, there's a lot of retirees there, but they're more from other generations. And uh, we just didn't have like a big military presence there. And so when I was going to college, I wanted to do some kind of service. So I had looked into maybe the, possibly the Peace Corps or something like that. And and something about the Navy really just struck me. I had as a kid gone to visit. We have two museum ships here in Buffalo, the Sullivans, which was named after five sailors who had died on the same ship during World War II. Terrible tragedy there. And um, the second ship is the Little Rock. And so we had done like a, I don't know, trips there with school or something. I just was kind of fascinated with it. And and of course, you know, they say join the Navy and see the world. And, you know, they're not kidding. I think I ended up in about 80 countries. Some of them you want to go to like Bali or Japan or something. And other ones maybe weren't on your list, like, you know, Iraq or Haiti. But you get to see all sorts of great things all over the world. And and so it just presented a lot of really interesting opportunities for adventure and, you know, just a way to serve the country, too. That's really what it boiled down to. And you did ROTC, right? I did. I did um, at the Boston University, although I didn't have a scholarship from the Navy. It's kind of an interesting story. I went in January instead of uh, September, and I didn't have a ROTC scholarship, and I wanted to apply for one. And they said, well, if you're going to be want to apply for a ROTC scholarship, you have to take calculus and physics. And I am like mathematics antimatter, right? And so I was like, hmm. And I was a history major. I'm like, you know, if I do that, then I'm going to lose my partial university scholarship if I don't keep my GPA up. And then I may not even get a ROTC scholarship. So I may really hose myself on this. So I said, you know what? How about I take your ROTC classes and I pay for my own college and you give me a commission at the end? And then they said yes. And so I did. I put myself through school. I worked 30 hours a week at a restaurant and I uh, worked as a nanny for my room and board and I took a bunch of student loans and I got my commission like everybody else. In the end, it just worked in a different way. So you did ROTC, but you didn't have a scholarship. Yeah. Well, you know what kind of teaches you at a young age to be resourceful and to figure out a way to do stuff, even if it's not the traditional way to do it. You just figure out a way, get to your goal, no matter how you get there and without, as long as you're not doing it at someone else's expense, obviously, but you may have to work harder. That's fine. Just, just start doing it. You know, don't complain about it. Just do it. Yeah. And the fact that they were like, well, you have to take calculus and physics and you're like, yeah, it's not going to happen. So let me find a new way. Well, you know, it's funny. I have made a career out of avoiding calculus and I joke with people, you know, I have four master's degrees and it's probably because I wasn't smart enough to get the right one the first time around. But when I had to get a technical master's degree, I was like, oh, that that evil calculus was popping its head up again. But I was able to overcome it by doing other kind of math and analytic courses, you know, statistics and everything else. And I could honestly say I've never had to use calculus at work. So I consider that a victory. Especially with the Navy. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just kind of old mental models and they just need to look at kind of new ones for what is, what is, what are, how do you get critical thinking skills today other ways? You know what I mean? So we don't need to apply the 1950s model anymore. Yeah. So you commissioned and then you went active duty yeah, I've been, I was active duty from the day I commissioned till I retired 30 years later, a little over 30 years. And what was your career field? Well, it's interesting. It started off um, and changed, although I did communications and sort of when networks started coming aboard about a year or two after I got in the Navy, I did communications and networks and information operations the whole time and then moved into digital modernization and transformation later on. But the actual designator or career path changed because they lifted combat restrictions for women so then we could go to ships and they made some other changes and they developed a community or a specific what we call designator called information professionals that all they did was that kind of communications work. And so when I first came in, it was a dog's breakfast of people who were doing that kind of work. And as I progressed through, they actually created, they realized the Navy did that they needed a community that was really focused on, you know, communications and cyber and that space and that kind of stuff. And they created 
create a community of people that that was their whole career path. And I naturally moved into that because that's what I had done. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So what year was it when you joined the Navy? That was 1989 in August. So that means that Desert Storm happened shortly after you began active duty. Yeah, it was interesting because I, you know, I was you know, 22 years old and I hadn't been in a war before and, and I didn't consider myself at war at the time, although I remember the night Desert Storm kicked off. I, I was like, okay, well, what do I do differently? What what does this mean? What should I be doing? And I remember racing into work to make sure, you know, because I worked at a shore telecommunications station where we provided communications for like air, air squadrons and ships and things like that. And I was like, okay, well, what do I need to do extra? What do we need to do? And, you know, it wasn't really any much different other than we had more communications to process, but I didn't go to the front line or anything like that in that war. I, I did in I, the Iraq the second time over, you know, we were over in Iraq, I did, but I wasn't boots on ground the first time in 91. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And I read your book, Rock the Boat, and it sounded like you became a mom pretty early in your career. Is that correct? I was about five years in. I was probably 29 when I had my daughter. And it was interesting. She was born in Bahrain, which was where I was stationed in the Middle East at a United States Fifth Fleet Command over there. And so it was just a really kind of cool experience. And she has some interesting stories to tell when people say, hey, well, where were you born? And they say Bahrain. They're like, well, where's that? You know, tell me about that. So anyways, it was just a yeah, really great experience. And I love being a mom. It's my favorite thing. If I have to, if I'm proud of anything in my life, yeah, making Admiral, that's nice. And all these other things, but being a, a good mom or a good wife, that's, that's what takes the cake. Yeah, and you told a really, you to, I don't know if you told a few stories or maybe it's all one, but I really liked how you talked about like the balance between motherhood and being a good sailor in the Navy. Can you talk about like how you did that? And if you have any stories that you want to share, go ahead and share them. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think as a woman in any career path or as a guy, you know, I really hate the phrase working mom because, you know, what about a working dad, right? I mean, we're all working, right? And so what I found was that, you know, you can beat yourself up incessantly about not being perfect at being either the mom or the the work person, right? But what you need to do is cut yourself some slack and realize that, you know, you can do both and do both well. You're just going to do it differently. You're not going to just do one thing or the other. You're going to, you can do both, but you have to be deliberate in some of your choices and make sure you understand where you're taking professional risk or, or you're sacrificing time with the people who love you, right? And so all along, I, you know, when I had my daughter, I'll, I'll give you a story just to give an example. When she was three, about three and a half years old, almost four years old, she, I used to drop her off in the mornings at the Child Development Center, which was near the base, and then I'd go to my ship. And I remember one time they were having a hat parade at the Child Development Center, and that's literally where they take some newspaper, construction paper, and they make some goofy-looking hat that looks like a Pablo Capa, you know, Pablo Picasso nightmare, and they, they parade around the parking lot for about five minutes, and all the parents scream with joy, like, oh! Yeah, 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 you look so great, you know. And then everybody goes about their day, and it lasts about 10 minutes, the hat parade, right? And so in the morning, I dropped her off that day, and she's like, Okay, mommy, hat parade today. I said, Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be there. And I got to work, and it was the day before we were getting underway for a very large joint exercise, which meant we were going to have people from the other services also riding the ship who weren't familiar with the Navy. I mean, they're like, What's a port? What's a starboard? You know, got Air Force and Army guys walking around. They don't even know anything about being on a ship, let alone how to get on the networks and everything. And I was responsible for all the networks, and so everybody was trying to get on. It was total chaos, you know, and I remember it was like I, I got a late start to get over to the hat parade. And when I got over there, I was like five minutes late. And sure enough, uh, hat parade's over. 
right? And I was like, oh man, you know? And so I look across the playground and all the kids had gone out to the playground to play. And I saw my daughter over there and she looked at me and her face just burst out crying and her mouth was so large. It was like, you know, those space pictures from space where you can see like the Great Wall of China or you can see, you know, the Grand Canyon that looked like her mouth, you know, and she ran over to the fence and she put her hands to the fence and she said, mommy, you promised you were going to be here and you weren't. And I mean, that just ripped my heart out at that moment. And I made a choice at that moment. I said, I am not going to be that parent ever again. I'm not going to put my job over everything else every time, all the time. Now, there are times in the military you have to do that. And we all know that. And you do that self, like selflessly and your family supports you selflessly. And that is your job. And that's what you are. You have signed up to do. And you you love to do that. That is that's why you're there. But But not everything is a crisis like that. And we tend to, in the military, make everything a crisis when it isn't. And so... I said, I'm just not going to be that person anymore, that parent. And so sure enough, it was about six months later and the same scenario was playing out where we had 600 augmentees jumping aboard the ship. We were getting underway the next day for an exercise. It was, you know, it was chaos on the communications and network side. And I went to my boss and it was my daughter's birthday. And I had all these melting cupcakes in the car. And I said to my, my boss, I'm like, look, I got to go for an hour, but I'll be back in an hour. And he was freaking out because he was not a communications guy. He was like a submarine guy and he, but he was responsible for all the communications. So he's like, it's crazy. It's chaos. We're, you know, everybody's trying to get on the network. It's all, we have all these problems. I said, sir, we're going to have all these problems in an hour. I just need an hour and I'll be back and I'll be with you for the rest of the three weeks that we're underway. We'll get these things worked out. Please just let me have an hour. And to his credit, he said, yes, you can have an hour, but be back in an hour. And so I went off and we did my daughter's little birthday party. Happy birthday, happy birthday. And I came back on the ship and we went underway and everything survived. You know, the Navy did not implode. Nobody died. Everything worked out. Right. And, you know, do you think five or six years after that, when I was up for my next promotion or three years, whatever it was, that someone said, oh, Lieutenant Barrett, she was not aboard the ship for an hour before that exercise. There's no way she can make Lieutenant Commander. No, nobody's going to say that. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, we were long forgotten that, right? But would my daughter have remembered I missed her birthday? Yes, she would have. And uh, I wasn't going to do that. So anyway, you can, you can make those choices, but you have to consider the balance, consider the other people in your life or the other things in your life that are important and, and how you balance those out. You have to make really deliberate planned choices to do that. Yeah, I think that's a great story. And it shows the sacrifice, but also like you can take an hour to go and do something and then come back and like stay the rest of the day and the work still gets done, but on maybe not. And it probably would have taken you the same amount of time to stay at work to get everything done, even if you hadn't left for that hour, because like you said, it's still going to be messed up an hour from now, or I could just go. That's so. true. And you know, honestly, if nobody's going to remember or care two or three years from now, what are you worried about? Why do you even care? Let it go. You don't have to address, you know, sometimes no answer is an answer, right? There are some things you don't have to do anything about. They work themselves out. And so don't get worked up about stuff that you don't need to. Figure out what is important. What is the hill you want to die on, right? Where, what is the most important thing to support your mission and do that? And everything else can, can wait. And how did you balance going out to sea and like, did you have a family care plan? Did your spouse take care of your daughter? How did that all work on the back end? Well, I was incredibly fortunate in that my husband was, he's just the best spouse I could ever hope for, the best guy in the world. I mean, he supported my career 
from day one. And he was a physical therapy assistant, but he always had his career uh, take second fiddle to mine. Now, I did other things to support him along the way that were important to him. For example, he wanted to finish his degree and, and he's from South America and he wanted to finish his degree when we first met. So I took orders to Puerto Rico so he could study at the University of Puerto Rico, knowing that his, studying in his own language, medical, complex medical things, it was a lot easier than studying in English, a second language, right? So, and then when he wanted to, when I got closer to, when we got closer to the end of my career, he wanted to leave physical therapy and become a Reiki master. So, you know, I supported him and making sure he could go to New York and get all his training and open his business and, you know, or, and do volunteer work. And he ended up doing volunteer work at Walter Reed for Wounded Warriors uh, doing Reiki. So there are ways to support your family. And my daughter too, her dream all along was to be a professional ballerina. And she is today. She's done that for about eight years now, but it was, I always took orders where she could get professional training and where I could also, you know, do my work. And so for example, like you say, what happens when you're underway? Well, she would support me and he would support me when I was underway and gone for six months and they would, you know, they're very close and they would work together and do their thing. And then when I come back, I'd jump in and we'd all be together doing things and I would support them to make sure they could do their what was important for them too, their dreams and aspirations. It wasn't just about me. And so you have to really think about that whole little ecosystem of your family or what's important to you. And sometimes, you know, you might not have kids. That's okay. It might be your parents or or it might be just your hobbies, things you love. You just got to keep all that in balance. And and there are times where you're going to have to give more and your family knows that. And that's part of being, that's kind of the baggage that comes with being in the military. And But if you have a really good family support system, you're going to be really, really successful. And I was blessed to have that with both my my husband and daughter, and my mom and, and dad and stepdad. That's really great. Do you think that your husband, because he was civilian, right? Yeah, he yeah, he's civilian the whole time, huh? Yeah. Did he face any challenges being a male military spouse? Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> like when we first got married, people like could not compute. You know, first of all, I, over the course of my career, probably 90% of the time I was the only woman in the room, especially until the last five years, female officer or whatever, you know, so... It's very, it was very common. I remember way back in the day when we first got married, and that was like back in 91, you know, you'd show up and it was the wives club. And, you know, he's not one to join a bunch of clubs anyway. He's really quiet and he's not into all that. But I'm like, you know, I, I'd go to the command. I'd be like, hey, let's call that the spouses club, you know, because, you know, there are other spouses of other genders here, right? You know, and now we're lucky enough to have spouses of couples of, di- you know, of the same gender and different things and different models for what, what families look like. And I'm glad the Navy's very inclusive of those now because, you know, it's just great to see that kind of representation all along and that some of the old things, again, from the 1950s or some old John Wayne movie, you know, the spouse, you know, the wives club or whatever, that's all gone, you know. And I'm not discounting a female sp- a spouse by any means. I'm just saying let's recognize every spouse for the value and the support they provide to our nation and the people that are doing those tough jobs in our way, you know, fighting wars and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think military spouses play a role in supporting their service member, maybe because I'm a military spouse. Yeah, well, you know what it's like, right? You absolutely know. And it is it's a, it is a big sacrifice. That's why I always say when I speak at retirements that it's just a mu- as much about the spouse and the family as it is about the military person. I mean, they, the whole little unit served the nation, right? They all made sacrifices to support and defend our constitution. For sure, yeah. Yeah, my husband is supposed to PC, or I guess we're supposed to PCS next summer, and we've been trying to figure out where we're going to go, and we've had a lot of discussions, and it's not just a, let's do whatever is best for you. It's a discussion about what's best for the family and what's good for my career and his career and all lots of different considerations. Yeah, you guys got the right approach, because you can do that and make it work. You just It's a little extra work to do that, but do it, right? 
Yeah, it's a little complicated. It gets more complicated the more years that you go through. So we've gotten a little bit, I guess we're about like seven or eight years into your career because your daughter's born, I guess maybe a little bit more. She was four or five. She was, you were probably like nine or 10 years. When did 2001, like how old was your daughter when September 11th happened? Uh, she was five. Okay. Yeah, she was born 96. Yeah. That's a lot of public math for me. You were really testing me there, man. <laughs> Between like the first Gulf War and September 11th, was there anything that stands out from your career that you think people should know about? Well, not not for me specifically, but I think there were some big changes that happened. They allowed women on combat ships. They lifted a lot of combat exclusion restrictions. And so that was really great for women in the military and women in the Navy. And it opened up a whole bunch of opportunities for folks that frankly had been an artificial, stupid barrier for a long time that didn't need to be there. So a lot of those kind of changes were really, really nice to see and opportunities for our sailors and chiefs and officers to then go to ships and and experience that, uh, be able to contribute there as well. And submarines, later submarines too. Mm -hmm. Aviation, all of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that happened in the 90s. And when did the submarines happen? That was later, right? Uh, that was like in early 2000s, I want to say. I don't remember the exact date, but it was it was several years after combat exclusion on surface ships and uh, combatants had been lifted. So do you think that changed the way the war in Iraq and Afghanistan happened? Not happened, but the fact that women were able to be on surface ships Absolutely. And I think it added to the richness of the response, frankly. I mean, you get when you have a diverse group of people, you get all sorts of really good ideas and ways to do things and potentially changes in tactics, techniques, procedures, warfighting uh, concepts. Anytime you have a diverse population, whether it's diverse gender, diverse race, diverse you know way of thinking, background, where people grew up, all those things, you really get to get a lot of great ideas and the, that whole crowdsourcing of ideas becomes so much richer. So yeah, I do think it made a difference. Plus, you know, you've got more people to do boots on ground or to be on ships. Uh, you've got a, a broader population to draw from of great Americans who want to serve. And you said earlier that you were boots on ground in Iraq. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you want to talk a little bit about that deployment and what you were doing? Yeah, that was, I really uh, felt privileged to be able to support that effort. It was at the beginning of the, the second war there around 2003. I believe the date was escaping me now, the exact date I was over there. But yeah, I was an individual augmentee over there. And I was really fortunate from a security perspective in that I wasn't out kicking down doors. I mean, the brave people in that effort were the sailors, soldiers, Marines, who were in Fallujah or who were out kicking down, you know, going house to house and are on the street all the time. I, I applaud them for their bravery and their courage. And we certainly need to take care of a lot of them who have PTSD and suffer from some of the things they've seen in those environments. I was fortunate enough to do most of my work. I was in a palace, actually. I was on a, one of, in one of Saddam Hussein's old palaces. And while there was threats to the base, you know, we'd get rocketed and mortared and people got killed and be in the wrong place at the wrong time at that place. Or, you, you know, if your helicopter was up, you might get people shooting at the helicopter and things like that. But the work we were doing was more in the, at the strategic level to, at that time, to help with their first elections and make sure their elections went off well and that all the planning for the security for that and the helping them with establishing governments and government projects and things like that were important. And my role in that was uh, supporting the communications piece. Which makes sense because that was your career field. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of the Navy PA people that I've talked to who are like in country, they're public affairs, which is public affairs and communications similar but different? 
Yeah. So communications, you can think of as like the guys who provide your telephone, your, you know, your network connectivity. They make sure that the things are safe and secure from a, uh, like people can't intercept your signals and things like that. I mean, they allow you to use that kind of platform to do your information warfare or your administrative tasking and things like that to do your job. The Public affairs officers are the ones who put out the themes and the messages about what the U.S. government wants to say about what you're doing there. So they would be the ones to do press releases and arrange press conferences and do things with the Iraqis and other groups, you know, and document that in photos to put in the media and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I've always referred it as Air Force called COM, which is communications, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that sounds like an interesting experience and... It's so interesting to hear all the different roles and jobs and missions that happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, especially with the drawdown of Afghanistan and the wars being officially over. Let's talk a little bit about when you got selected for Admiral and what that experience was like. Was it something that you were expecting and what kind of emotions did you have when it happened? Yeah, I know. Absolutely not expecting it because I mean, you know, that is uh, rarefied air. I will be, I will tell you, and I am blessed that I was picked. I mean, the real realistic thing is, you know, you prepare, you do all your jobs. You don't focus on, hey, I'm going to make Admiral, whatever. You just get in there and do your job, do really well. And, and whatever happens, happens, right? But as you get more senior and as they, every year they have a, what's called a selection board that looks at officers' records and they pick out those people. They think they have the potential to serve as an Admiral in the Navy, not necessarily what you've done, but what you could do, you know, so it's a combination of the both. And so the year that I was picked for Admiral, I was just really, really blessed that the people who were on that selection board saw that I had the potential to make some changes at the for the Navy at that leadership level. And I hope I was able to fulfill their expectations there, you know, but, you know, realistically, uh, there were probably, you know, they might start with, I don't know, 400, 500 records they're looking at, and they're going to pick two, three admirals, whatever, right? And then they'll probably get down to a pool of maybe 20 or 30 that are really, really super competitive for that. And out of those 20 or 30, any one of those officers, any day of the week could get picked for admiral, you know, and and it's just the way the wind blew that day that I had somebody on the, the people on the board thought that my record was worthy of that or, or should be considered for that. And, and I was really blessed and lucky to be picked. And I don't, I don't discount that for a day. I just feel incredibly, incredibly lucky. It sounds like you're very humble and just really thankful for being selected and that you took that selection as an honor and with a role to fulfill. Yeah, I mean, I took it as a responsibility. And I know that as a admiral, you have a limited shelf life. I mean, you're probably going to be around one to maybe five years, or if you make three or four star, you may be around for 10 years, right? But you have a limited time to make a difference. So you have to really pick what is the biggest thing, the most important thing I could do for our Navy and our nation in those five years where I can push using my leadership position to push really, really hard to make those changes that will be lasting and important or needed, or just whatever we need to do as a service to make that our support of, of the nation better. So I really did that. And I focused on a couple of key projects that I thought were one key project called Compile the Combat in 24 Hours was kind of my, my big thing to transform the Navy's data and transport architecture because it had been lagging for a long time and how to fix it and really hard. It's one of those big, hard, hairy problems that nobody wants to take on as a an enterprise. They'll kind of chip away at the edges and solve little, try to solve little pieces of it. But you need somebody to tie the whole thing together and to, to look at it holistically. And I thought that was really important to do. So I spent a lot of my time doing that. And people would come to me and they'd be like, hey, you need to go to this meeting or you need to do this. I'm like, yep, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. 
You know what I mean? Because you know what? It's not as important. And so you really need to keep your eyes laser focused on what matters for the mission of the Navy and do that. It sounds like you took your like philosophy on like figuring out what your priorities were for your family and like moving across the country. And then you used it and applied it to like, what's the most important thing that I can do as an admiral in the Navy. And I know I only have a short window of time. So I'm going to focus on those priorities and I'm not going to get bogged down with all this bureaucratic stuff. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, you try that. I mean, like uh, I will tell you the evil twins of institutional inertia and institutional resistance are everywhere, especially the more senior you get, you know, people want to love to tell you no, right? But you know what? You don't take counsel from naysayers as Colin Powell says, you know, don't take, don't take the low road, take the high road, keep moving, keep your focus, keep your vision, keep your teams of people around you who will help you get there because they're the ones who will make that a success, not you. And as long as you keep pushing and giving them the resources to do it, help clearing barriers out of the way, they're going to carry on with that work long after you've gone. And, you know, I see emails from friends where stuff that I started is, is moving ahead still and making progress. And that really makes me happy because that means, it's, you know, the right, the Navy is doing the right thing in multiple levels. It's not just me that was pushing that. It was other people too. But my point is that you need leaders visibly pushing that and doing those things and not taking no for an answer from the, the 007s of no and the PhDs of no out there. You know, and, and isn't it an organization that's easy to make change in? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, change is hard. People get really angsty about change and you got to be a change management guru and a, a change agent to transform, to truly transform it. But that's your job if you're selected to be an admiral. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I love how you explained it. It makes so much sense and it kind of highlights why people are picked and what generals and admirals do for the military. So that's a really good explanation. Like you said, you only have like five years or so as an admiral. So eventually it was time to leave the military. And what was that experience like? You kind of got to pick, but you also had to get out. So what was that experience like? Or was there something that just made you decide it was time to leave? Well, everybody, everybody's got to get out at some point. You know what I mean? You can't stay in the Navy forever as much as you love the Navy. But I also wanted to do other things. You know what I mean? I wanted to have more time with my family, more control over my schedule. And, you know, the other thing too, is if you... If you're around, the longer you stick around as an admiral, that's somebody else who can't make admiral. Well, you know, you vacate that job, now a seat's open, someone else can make admiral, right? So there's there's practicalities to like, you know, selection boards and all those kind of things. And so I just think that, you know, the Navy had kind of said, you know, thanks, thanks for your service. And I said, hey, thanks for letting me serve. And I was ready to go do other things. And I didn't feel like I needed to stay any longer. And I didn't feel like that I was going to miss the Navy. What I missed about the Navy was the operational jobs. And you stop getting those like when basically when you're a captain anyway, I was lucky to have one at cyber command, but a lot of, a lot of the really cool, interesting, fun work is not as an admiral. It's like the lower ranks, you know, where you're actually hands-on doing things and you got sailors working for you and things like that. So the things that I would miss about the Navy, I had already missed anyway. You know, I wasn't going to get those jobs back on ships again and things like that. And so for me, leaving the Navy, it wasn't a problem because, you know, I don't look in my rearview mirror when I make a decision, I move out and I get excited about the future. And I am excited about the future. I'm doing all sorts of fun stuff I love to do. And I still keep in touch with my Navy friends. So the things that I loved about the Navy, my friends, uh, my shipmates, I... I still have them. So it's not like I've missed anything. Yeah. And I mentioned earlier that you wrote a book. I don't remember if I said the title, but it's Rock the Boat. And what led you to decide to write a book on leadership? 
Well, you know, over the years, anybody who's a Navy officer or any kind of officer or senior enlisted, you end up talking in front of groups. They ask you to speak on leadership topics or mentoring topics and things like that. And I found that people were asking always, it's funny, Amanda, they always ask the same questions. So, what do I do if my boss is a jerk? You know, how do I have a work-life balance? How do I plan for a career and not just not my next job? Or, you know, how do I communicate better? So, the same things would come up again and again and again. I said to my husband, I'm just going to write that down. But I wanted to write a book that was more like a conversation, sort of like we're having now. I didn't want to write like a heavy leadership tone because, frankly, I found those incredibly boring. And, you know, when people add gravitas by trying to put some mathematical formula in there for leadership, I'm like, oh, please just show me the exit door right now. My eyes are, my eyeballs are bleeding. So I just wanted to write a book that was hopefully a little you know, gave some stories, you know, some sea stories, I call them that might be funny or endearing, or that might help you remember a leadership lesson long after you put the book down. So, yeah, I was telling you before we started the interview that I really liked the sea stories at the end, because they were so real. And they were like, not stuff that I guess I expected. I guess I expected an admiral to be like very polished. And I'm not saying you weren't, but you just were so real with like your stories that made it very relatable to my life and my experience. And so I really enjoyed that part of it where I could hear your stories and they always related really well with the chapter that you wrote about. So I thought you did a really good job of like tying each chapter together. It was like, here's what you should do. Here's my advice. And then here's a C story. And then I also like the, you always ended it with like the three positives, which I always liked that because Sometimes you had like really hard situations and you were like, I'm going to still find three positives. And I love that attitude and that way of looking back at things, of looking for three positives that you can take with you instead of just focusing on the negative. Yeah, no, I appreciate. Thank you for the comments. And uh, that was kind of the intent that I wanted to get out of it. It's like, yeah, you know, my underwear story is probably not one that most animals would write about, but it makes you think, you know, the moral of the story is slow down, you know, take your life a little slower and you're going to cause yourself less problems, right? And like you said, you can find, you have to train your brain to think positively. And I think as a leader, that's a, that's a responsibility we have is to be positive, not to be unrealistic or Pollyanna, right? But to be positive and to, you know, force, not force, but uh, encourage positivity and collaboration and, you know, a forward thinking vision outlook that's, that's very open and positive and transparent with the people we work with. That's what makes people want to follow leaders. Nobody wants to follow Debbie Downer down the road, you know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, find out what you can pull out of even the worst, most cringeworthy situation. I mean, if you didn't die, you're going to make it through and there's going to be something you could pull out of that to learn from and teach somebody else from. And if you did die, okay, well, there you go, right? You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I kept telling my husband, I was like, she's so funny because <laughs> usually you read a leadership book and you're not laughing. Well, I'm glad you laughed. That was the intent with some of those stories because boy, you'll remember the lesson though, right? Uh, out of that, you may not remember the theory, but you'll certainly remember the lesson. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else from your time in the military or a piece of wisdom that you want to share with the audience before we wrap it up with one more question? No, I just think that, you know, when, when polls are taken, you know, nationally about, you know, who in government people trust, almost always the, the military comes out at the top in a positive way. And I just hope that we'll still have people who want to serve their country. I mean, we have so many talented young people who come in the military who could be doing anything else. They could be making more money somewhere else. They could be not putting their lives in danger, not having to make sacrifices with their family the way you do in the military. And we 
We still have an all-volunteer force of outstanding, professional, great, dedicated citizens who want to come and serve their country from all walks of life, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, it doesn't matter what political ba- background they have. They're all genders. They're all all races, all different backgrounds of different areas of the country. And they all want to do the same thing. They want to protect and defend our constitution. And as we've seen in the last year, our democracy and our constitution are the most important things that we have in this nation. Nothing else, our economy, nothing else even compares to that. And so we have to maintain that. And I'm just honored to have served with so many people over the years who felt the same way. Yeah, I love that. And that is one of the like great parts about the military is there's people from all over the country and different races and ethnicities and cultures. And you just, it changes your worldview of the military, at least for me, because I grew up in a small town and I didn't really know anyone outside of that small town. And then I joined the military and I had all these friends from all over and I lived in different places and I learned a lot. And thank you for your service, really. I mean, you could have chosen to do anything else and you chose to serve. And there's a reason it's called serving. So thank you for your service. So I want to ask you one last question, which is kind of tied into your last answer, but more directly focused on young women who are considering military service. What would you say to them if they're thinking about joining the military? I would say absolutely. I mean, when I first got in, the military was a harder place for women. But over the 30 years I've been in, it's amazing all of the progress that's been made and the progress that's continued to make every day. And you've seen Admiral Howard, a four-star female admiral. You've seen Admiral Ty, a three-star admiral. I mean, there's lots and lots of examples of people who make the top command master chiefs and force master chiefs who are women. So there's no barrier in the military. And we just had a, uh, a female uh, go get through SEAL training, right? And so I'm really happy, I think, now that we don't have to say there's firsts in the Navy anymore. It's now normal. It's, you know, these are just great officers, chiefs, and enlisted women who are who are just officers, chiefs, and enlisted. They don't have to call them out as being male or female anymore. They're just great patriots serving their country. And it's great we're at the point where, you know, we don't have to worry about being the first of this, the first of that anymore. It's just the way it is. And we got great professionals doing it. And they just happen to be women. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and everybody go out and get her book, Rock the Boat. I'm sure you'll laugh as much as I did. And just thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.